0: The second reading is taken from uh, Daniel chapter three. Daniel chapter three, verse one. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of God whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects and the governors the councillors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the councillors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego these men o king pay no attention to you they do not they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up then nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that shadrach meshach and abednego be brought so they brought these men before the king nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counsellors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, "'Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, "'who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, "'who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, "'and yielded up their bodies, "'rather than serve and worship any god "'except their own god. "'Therefore I make a decree, Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of God.
1: Well, friends, if you've got your Bibles, do keep it open to that chapter. Uh, Let's pray once again. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we listen to these words, that we'll hear the words of God, what we must learn, what we must understand, and how we must stand in a world that is against you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I invite you to imagine with me for a moment that you were living in northern Iraq in 2014, about seven years ago, in a town where Christians have lived continuously for almost 2,000 years. And so it's been the traditional home of Christians for, for a very, very long time. You're only a teenager, about 15 years old. You were taught the Christian faith, and you're just like any other teenager. You go to school, you play with your friends, you muck around on the streets. But then in 2014, ISIS, a terrorist organization came and swept through northern Iraq, ravaging, destroying much of its towns and cities, overrunning it and persecuting everyone who did not believe what they believed. And in July 2014, they issued a decree that all Christians in this area must either flee, convert to Islam, pay a tax or die so imagine you are living there you arrive home now they arrive to your home you didn't get a chance to flee like many of the other Christians and they threaten you along with three of your friends, your teenagers and they say to you say the words that you will follow Muhammad say it and at that moment you knew that your life was on the line You knew that this was it. And you're thinking, shall I just comply? Shall I just say those words but not believe it inside? What shall I do? What do you say? You look at your three other friends and they look at you. And you can see it in each other's eyes. We will not bow down to another. And you say to these soldiers, these terrifying soldiers, no, we love Yeshua. We have always loved Yeshua. We always followed Yeshua. And Yeshua has always been with us. And now these soldiers with anger and rage in their eyes, they threaten you again, say those words. But you say, along with your friends, no, we can't. And that moment, your heads were chopped off. Now, if you think that's unimaginable, it sounds so terrifying, so horrific, but that was exactly what happened in 2014, one of the many horrifying stories reported by the vicar of Baghdad, Canon Andrew White. But when you hear a story like that, it does make you wonder, doesn't it? How did those teenagers have such resolve, confidence, conviction to stand up against these terrifying terrorists. And when you hear stories like that, it has to call into question our own faith. What is our faith like? What is your faith like? Do I have such a conviction of those teenage boys? And you must wonder whether it was this story we read today that gave those boys that courage to always trust God. Because that's what we see in this passage. We see in three parts. First, there is always, always the pressure to bow down to another. Two, but we must always have that conviction to stand. And three, because the test of fire will come. And so one, there is always the pressure to bow down, to conform, to give our allegiance and homage to another, to another thing or another person. They said, follow Muhammad, or what we see here in this passage. Because what happened in this passage? Very similar. Nebuchadnezzar, at this point, ruler, powerful, but yet insecure, wanting to keep control over his entire empire, wanting to create a sense of unity and uniformity, how do I make sure that I, I get everyone in my empire show allegiance to me and to me alone? How do I do that? Well, I know what I'll do. In my dream, Daniel said, I'm the head of gold. I'd rather be a whole statue of gold. And so he built this huge statue, 27 meters high, about twice as high as the top of this church. Now, we're not told whether this statue was a statue of him or one of the Babylonian gods, or just a big monument. But the purpose was clear. How do I create a sense of unity and allegiance? You bow down to this statue, or you die. And that's what we see, verses 4 to 6. Have a look. A herald loudly proclaimed, People of every nation and language, you are commanded... When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And so what did the people do? Well, it's pretty obvious what they did. Perhaps for fear of their life, perhaps hurt mentality, We just did what everyone else did. It's the law of the land. We must do it. We're told to do it. Now you can just see them doing it mindlessly. The music has started, the drums, the zither, the harps, and they just bowed down, just like being hypnotized. And so that's what we see, verse 7. People of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Now at this point, reading this story, we're meant to sense how absurd, how senseless, how ridiculous this whole thing was. Though this huge golden statue may have looked so impressive standing up above the city of Babylon, everyone there coming down, listening to the music, bowing down, they must be thinking, so we've done it, we've come, we've bowed down, but what happens now? What is this statue going to do? And your mate says, well, I don't know, but we've done it. You see, we're meant to sense how absurd this whole thing was. Because just like any man-made idol, it couldn't walk, it couldn't speak. And it should, in a sense, remind us of that story of the Philistine god Dagon, who was left prostrate in his own temple before the God of Israel, unable to lift himself up, needing people to carry him. But yet Nebuchadnezzar, thinking himself so wise, he said, you bow down to this thing. And so not only was the statue mindless and hopeless and lifeless, so were all those who worshipped it. But that's the pressure to bow. And we see that even today. That pressure to bow to something or someone. It may not always be so blatantly obvious, often it is quite subtle, but the pressure to bow is there. You see, the story of Babylon was not just a story in history, but it is also a pattern of what we continue to see in the world today. Take, for example, the pressure to bow. This past week, the staff at the Australian National University, ANU in Canberra, they've been given a book a handbook on the Gender Institute, the Gender Institute handbook. In this handbook, the staff at this university, they are asked to stop using the words mother and father. Have you heard of that? That's only very recent, this past week. Instead of saying mother, you are to say gestational parent. No more mothers, gestational parents. And fathers, not fathers, But non-birthing parents. And you can't say you can feed your child mother's milk. You have to now say it's human milk or parent milk. Now, I don't know of any dads who could produce milk, do you? And you can't say breastfeeding, but it's chest feeding. Now, I wonder how many dads have tried that and succeeded. It's not a golden statue. It is subtle. But if you're working at ANU, will you bow down to that? And it's the brightest minds in our country who put together this handbook. What does that say? Or it could be in the corporate boardroom. You may not find a golden statue there. No idols. But the idols are there. It might be profit, profit, profit. What the work says... You do. The work says you do something, you do it. The work sends you somewhere, you go. The work says you give your allegiance first to the company, above your family, above your home, above your church, above your God. Not a golden statue is subtle. But will you bow? Or in the hospitals and amongst the medical professionals, you're told to put aside your faith. You can't mix up with your professional work as a doctor. You can't call an unborn child an unborn child. You're not allowed to believe that life begins at conception. Instead, call it whatever else you may just to dehumanize it a fetus, a cluster of cells, but not a baby. Just so that the world can justify doing what we want with the child and we'll name it pro choice. Not a golden statue subtle but will you bow down to that you see the pressure to bow is enormous not only back in the time of Babylon but even today but the pressure to bow never really works you see you might get someone to bow down physically they might do it willingly or begrudgingly bend a knee but you can't change the heart that way but there will always be some who will have the conviction to stand to not bend the knee, to not compromise, to not conform. And that's what we see in this story. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar, with all his vast powers, made it as clear as possible. Chapter 1, he tried to win them over, gave them the best of foods, everything, the best education. By chapter 3, their faith was under attack. And now you have some of these Chaldeans, perhaps envious of the high positions Nebuchadnezzar granted these three, they came to the king, perhaps patronizingly, verse 9, made a king live forever. And then verse 12, there are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your God to worship the gold statue you have set up. And so they're saying to the king, if anyone is meant to give you full loyalty, full allegiance, it is those you have given power and honor to. But these three, they're undermining your power, and you cannot leave that alone. Now, what did Nebuchadnezzar not understand about the human heart? Well, what he did not understand is that you cannot enforce belief. You cannot force faith upon someone else. You might get someone to physically bend a knee, but the heart remains unchanged. And that is really why, even in the world today, religious states just do not work. ISIS, the Islamic State, it just will not work. Even if those four bowed the knee to Muhammad, you cannot change their heart. And that is also why, when Christians try to enforce belief, it just will not work. A Christian state will not work. We can persuade, not enforce. And that's why the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, he said, We know the fear of the Lord, and therefore we try to persuade. But what did Nebuchadnezzar also not know, but should have known? Well, if he remembered his dream, what he confessed after Daniel interpreted his dream, that the God of Daniel is the God of gods, he should have remembered and realized there is a higher power than him. But yet he, in his pride, furious at these three guys highlights his insecurity verse 15 if you don't worship it you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire and who is the God who can rescue you from my power do you see how proud that is what he said there what type of God has more power than me and so how did Sadrach Meshach and Ebenego respond Where they had the conviction to stand. The same conviction they had years ago when it was just about food, not crossing the line. It is that same conviction. Now they will not bow. And you just have to love what they said here. They stood firm, defiant, and resolute. Look at verses 16 and 17. Nebuchadnezzar, not even king, Nebuchadnezzar. We don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. Now, how were they able to say such words? How did they have that fortitude? Now, you are unable to say such words unless you have the conviction to know where you stand. The conviction was formed not at that very moment, but well beforehand, from their Bible study, from what they learned from their parents, just like in our baptism today. The task of parents is to raise their children up in the instructions of the Lord. It is why we are what we call a Bible church. It is because we want our convictions to be shaped by what God says and always by what God says and not what the world says. And unless that happens, unless I know what I believe and know where I stand, when we find ourselves not only being forced to bow down to some statue or whatever it is, or bow down to some waves or currents of whatever our world believes, unless that happens, we will not have the backbone or the conviction to stand. You see, it is always our theology that drives our practice, because In a moment of pressure, unless we have our theology right, our theology, our understanding of God right, do you know what will win the day? What will win the day will be pragmatics. Isn't it far more pragmatic? Even as we think about this, isn't it far more pragmatic often in life to just stay silent as Christians in the office, in the classroom, to not be seen? as the Christian person. is far more pragmatic. Far more pragmatic for your relationships. It, it may be uh, something that will affect your social standing. So far more pragmatic to just stay silent. But that is to be driven by pragmatics and not our theology. And so you can imagine how easy it was for Sadrach, Meshach, and Ebenigo to justify any number of reasons for a more pragmatic outcome. They could have justified by saying, maybe we'll just go with it. The whole empire, they've bowed down. We're not in our home. It just makes sense, and it's the law of the land. Maybe we'll just go with it. Or they could have justified by saying, well, what good is it for us if we die now? We've been placed by God in positions of of importance, of power, of honor. We can do so much more for the kingdom of God if we stayed alive so we should just bow. Or they could have justified by saying, well, we know this golden statue is not a real God anyway, so it doesn't really matter if we bow on the outside, but on the inside we stand. They could have justified it that way. But here we have men who were not driven by pragmatics, but by theology. We know the power of God nebuchadnezzar is no match for our god and we will not bow down both on the outside nor on the inside and our conviction is we stand and we'll really see who's the sovereign ruler over all is it you O king or our god you see this is well before they get anywhere close to the fire and in one sense god has already rescued them spiritually what God will also do physically in a moment. But their faith, it sounds so extraordinary, isn't it? You read these stories and you think, well, mine's just not like that. And I wonder how many of you feel that way. My faith is just not like that. But what you have to hear is that we share the same faith in the same God. It wasn't so much the strength of their faith, but the strength of the one they had faith in. It wasn't so much the strength of their faith, but the strength of the one they believed in. But now look at how wholesome, how certain their faith was. They knew that God could rescue them, but their faith was big enough to recognize that God did not have to recognize uh, to rescue them to be their God still. God was still their God, and they will not bow. And perhaps there in their response, they show a hint that they believe in the resurrection life. Even if God allowed us to die, we believe that one day we'll be raised again. And I do wonder whether it was verse 18 that was on the minds of those Iraqi boys just before they were beheaded. We love Yeshua. I'm sure God can rescue us, but if not, we will not bow down to another. And so verse 18, have a look. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. So why were they able to say such a thing? Well, they trusted that God's purposes will always be best, even if they were not rescued. Their faith was not conditional. I'll believe in God if he does this and that for me. I mean, that's the flavor of many, isn't it? I'll only believe in God if he does this and that for me. But their faith was not conditional. Even if I die, God is still my God. And so there's always the pressure to bow, but there must be the conviction to stand. And now finally, the test of fire. Nebuchadnezzar gets this furnace heated up seven times hotter. Gets the stronger soldiers to tie them up, and in this twist of irony, it was those soldiers who were burnt and toasted. But then, to the great surprise of King Nebuchadnezzar, look at verse 24. Didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, Your Majesty. Look, I see four men not tied walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now, again, to prevent us from missing the point, not seeing the forest for the trees, the point here is not trying to work out who this fourth man is. Was it an angel? Some scholars have even suggested it was the pre-incarnate Christ. But again, that is to miss the point. The point is that God has come to rescue his people. When Nebuchadnezzar threatened, who is the God who can rescue you from my power? And how did God answer? It is me. It is me. You have no power. Your fires did not even touch their clothes, did not even burn a strand of their hair. And so Nebuchadnezzar, at the very end, was once again put in his place. And he confesses, There is no God like this God. And so these men stood the test of fire. And so in a story like this, the story of the Iraqi boys, it has to, at the very least, call into question our faith, your faith. Will you be able to stand even as you see the fiery furnace blazing? You see, what we need to remember from this story is that fire cannot destroy faith. It refines it. Fire cannot destroy faith. It refines it. You see, this story could have ended very differently. If they, for fear of the fire, consented, compromised, and bowed down, there will be no faith to show for. No backbone, no conviction, no nothing. But yet, how would they live with themselves? But here in this story, facing the fire, only refined their faith. Facing the fire allowed them to apply their theology. Do I really believe this? Do I really believe God? Yes, I do. And perhaps there is there a lesson for the church today. Could it be, and I want you to reflect on this, could it be that that might be even the way God will refine his church today? Not when times are easy. When persecution is sparse, but when the furnace is burning. Now, this may be hard for us to understand living here in Australia, especially as we compare our lives to the lives of those Iraqi boys, to the lives of Christians in in North Korea, in China, in many parts of Africa. But increasingly, I think we will see it more and more. We see it already around the Western world, the family unit designed by God as good, father, mother, children, the building blocks of society is being dismantled. We see it more and more as much of human depravity, what happens to it now? It gets normalized from Hollywood, from Netflix, from what is seen, from what is advertised, but not only normalized, but legitimized. And we see morality, well, there's no more morality. We just redefine words to whatever we want. And as we face that, the world in which we live, you have to ask yourself, do you have the conviction to stand? And perhaps to prepare us as we learn from our brothers and sisters in places where they are persecuted, where their life is on the line. A Nigerian pastor said to open doors, a mission organization. He said, They burnt down churches. They raided people's homes. They killed people. According to what I've seen, they are out to destroy us Christians. But we do not pray that God will take away the hardship, but that God would give us the grace to be able to stand. And as the church faces the furnace, will we stand as you see the freedoms of Christians taken away, as you see words that were once okay but now censored and you're not allowed to use, as you see prayers criminalized, as you see Christians dragged to court and thrown into prison because of their faith, what do we pray? Do we pray that God will take away all this hardship and persecution? Or do we pray like our Nigerian brothers and sisters, not that God will take away the hardship, but that God should give us the grace to be able to stand. And so will you bow or will you stand? I mean, as I reflected on that story again this past week about those four boys from Iraq, I asked myself, would I do the same if I was in that position? And I also asked myself, Would I want my kids to do the same and be beheaded? What would you do? Would you be able to stand and say like them, I love Yeshua? Why? Because way before they came to love Yeshua, Yeshua came and died for them. And so we share that same faith in the same God In the same Saviour, Jesus Christ, who said, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes into glory of the Father and the holy angels. And so will you stand? Well, the answer is, by the grace of God, we can and we must. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you will help us to see this world for what it is, to be discerning and wise as we think about all that happens around us, but that by your grace, as we reflect on Jesus Christ who came and died for us, help us to stand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.